You are Locked On Kentucky, your daily Kentucky Wildcats podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Welcome to the Lockdown Kentucky Podcast. We bring you info and insights on UK football and basketball. Stay informed by making us part of your daily routine, whether you're on the way to work, on the way home from work, or you're still working from home. Tell your smart device to listen and follow for free to the Lockdown Kentucky Podcast. I'm Dan Reefer with Fox 56 along with Kyle Tucker of The Athletic. And today's episode of Lockdown Kentucky is brought to you by the best tasting protein bar on the market built bar remember to use promo code locked on for ten dollars off your first order at builtbar.com some interesting stuff coming out on friday kyle uh one the sec voted to allow student athletes to begin voluntary activities well football basketball to begin voluntary activities on campus beginning june 8th and Mitch Barnhart had something to say about that. Also, the NCAA Football Oversight Committee is working on a proposal that kind of lays out a timeline for starting the college football season on time. Jonathan Kaminga, a player that Kentucky, one of Kentucky's top recruiting targets and the number one player in the class of 2021, he's narrowed his list to five. We'll discuss that. And then your publication, The Athletic, came out with the top 50 most dominant college basketball teams of all time, and Kentucky has four such teams in the top 15. So we'll discuss all of that, but let's begin with what the SEC did, what it said, its vote on Friday, uh, is that they will allow student-athletes to be back on campus for voluntary workouts beginning June 8th. And then Mitch Barnhart released a statement basically saying they're working towards you know implementing a safe phase by phase way to bring athletes back uh from student athletes to coaches and fans yeah yeah i the fans part was interesting at the end uh, mm-hmm. because there hasn't been a ton of talk about that yet i mean that has been i mean there's been some people saying they're going to they're going to try to do you know 25, 30, whatever percent capacity, but mostly all the, the initial talk really around college um, um, football has been about, you know, how we get the athletes back. I mean, first and foremost, they need to get the players back to be able to train, to be able to have a season, to at least put it on television uh, and have at least that revenue. Um, But there hasn't been a ton of talk about fans. And so for Barnhart to throw in, you know, say that we want to get our whole, our entire UK community uh, back this fall, including the fans. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's not a whole lot to read into that other than wishful thinking, but, um, but he did certainly did address it. Yeah. And there's some other guidelines that the SEC put out there, but they said it's going to be up to each institution uh, and each state and local government and all that. Uh, But they, the, the change it seems is that the availability of tests, are more widely available uh, for these schools to use so that they're able to do screening. Like the SEC recommends a three-stage screening process. So before student-athletes arrive on campus, they get tested, and then within 72 hours of entering athletics facilities, and then on a daily basis upon resumption of athletics activities. And there was an article in Sports Illustrated by Ross Dellinger 
where he was speaking to uh, he was speaking to someone, a coach or administrator at a school where they said, yeah, you know, a month or two ago or a month ago, we were thinking, how are we even going to get these tests? It's just no, no chance. And now we're being told by the administration, uh, by the government, the federal government, that we're looking at doubling tests every month moving forward that we'll have more and more. And so now it seems like a much more realistic possibility than it did previously because of the availability of testing. Yeah. Um, I, I think what I, the thing that I'm going to be interested to see when this all shakes out, however, whatever the process ends up being um, once in the NBA college athletics, all, all these groups go back to playing is the testing part of it. Like who, who are all these companies that are doing it? Uh, how much money is there to be made in that? You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a whole new industry that's basically going to explode for yeah. the foreseeable future. It, I mean, there are country, there are companies and I know of some uh, have talked to some um, there are companies all over the, not just the country, the world um, who are scrambling to be able to help in whatever capacity, whether it's a new kind of test or uh, a um, a cheaper test or a quicker test, or we can do more te- we can test more people in a shorter amount of time than anybody or whatever it is. You know, they're all making their pitches to these sports leagues. I mean, I know that the NBA has fielded several pitches from different companies that are saying like, Hey, we can help you. You know, we can, we can be a big part of this. I, I'm, that's one of the things I'm super interested in. Just like what, uh, what kind of co- not even I don't know if it's going to be even a cottage industry. It feels like it's going to be a huge industry until there's a, a bona fide vaccine or cure um, yeah. of just like all these companies that are making a fortune trying to help sports get back on the ground. But I think because of that, um, you know, uh, necess- necessity is the uh, father of all invention or however that that goes. Uh, I think because there's such urgency and so much money to be made and just people wanting to get life back. Uh, yeah. All the all these companies have poured so much energy and resources into it that that I think there's actually an abundance and an availability of it now, or there will be soon to get it done. So that that piece of it, I think, is just super interesting to me. Just a, sort of the nerdy part of it to me. Yeah, and who I was talking about was um, Bowlesby, Bob Bowlesby. He was the uh, commissioner of the Big Twelve. And he said on calls with the White House, officials told him that testing nationally will double every month from now on. And he estimates that players and staff would need to be tested at least every two to three days during the season. Uh, And now he's hearing, getting information that there's a quick strep throat-like test, which could be administered quickly. There's even a report out there I read today where one company Uh, is estimating that they could have the vaccine, like have all the trials done and have enough testing done where they feel confident in putting it out there by September, which would be phenomenal. I mean, that's extremely optimistic. But um, another note here on the football oversight committee, uh, what they're, they have a a policy that they're kind of trying to put together uh, a proposal uh, that, Uh, They're looking to kind of guide the return to football. They're discussing the potential to give programs like football programs in early July, the freedom to resume normal summer activities. 
You might remember Mark Stoops talked about this on his Zoom meeting with the media several weeks ago, where he had said hopefully there would be some adjustments like uh, allowing the coaches to work with the players, where normally the entire month of July, all summer long, it's just like strength and conditioning personnel. They're allowed to work with the players, and then players have voluntary workouts that they organize, like the quarterbacks will get out and throw with the receivers and all that stuff. And they'll do seven on seven by themselves. And Stoops was saying maybe they would let us, you know, coaches get in there with them to kind of speed up the the resumption to to football activities. And that's what the uh, football oversight committee is toying with here is what they're looking at is a model of a six week program that would start in mid to late July and would be two weeks of NFL style OTA practices and then a four week camp beginning in August. And they want any foot, any team that's going to play before they play their first game. They want the teams to have at least those four weeks of practice. Six weeks would be ideal but four would be the minimum that they're looking at. And then if you don't have four weeks, you know, because your state, maybe you're in, you know, Rutgers in New Jersey or, you know, where they, they're still, you know, dealing with stuff there where they're not ready to reopen quite as quickly. Uh, Then you could have where some teams might miss the first two weeks of the season. Uh, So, so they're trying to work through all that stuff, but, I mean, each day that goes by now, we're feeling more and more like football season will uh, will start on time. Of course, everything has to you know go the right way once everyone comes back. But um, I, it's the most optimism uh, we've had in two months, really. Yeah, I mean, it feels like uh, it. It feels like it's um, ramping up finally. You know what I mean? Like it just. Uh, after after all this time of no, I don't know if there's no, I wouldn't say no hope, but there was like a lot of skepticism. And then there was a kind of, it was kind of quiet. And the longer it went, it just felt kind of like, God, is this going to happen? You know, like, is there going to yeah. be any, any movement on this? I mean, can we really actually hope um, that this is going to um, go down? And, and so it feels like these last two weeks, really, and, and especially this week with these votes and now schools talking about it, um, I mean, something's happening. And if so much of what oh, the last couple months have been or three months have been is speculation, what maybe what will happen, what won't, um, something is actually happening now. Like pe- there are going to be people, athletes showing up on these campuses soon in the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah. and, and so I think that for, for a lot of people, it just feels like, okay, this is real. Like, and, and and folks are seeing you know people go back to work and restaurants open in their towns, depending on where you live. Um, I, I think that people can just kind of look around and go maybe not normal. I don't think life is going back to normal, but maybe life is going to resume in in something a little closer to normal. Well, in normal everyday life, when we're busy, we need something on the go, and a protein bar a lot of times is what we turn to to be you know something filling. Uh, when we were hungry and we need something on the go. And so many times you'll reach for a protein bar and it's kind of like thick and chalky, or you can only find one that's made out of nothing but nuts. And it just doesn't have enough protein to hold you over. Well, I got to tell you about built bar. The first time I tried it, I thought I was eating a candy bar. It's the best tasting protein bar that is out there. And 
I mean, it's, it, it fulfills all your needs. It has ton of protein, higher protein than most of the leading bar on the market. It's high in fiber, low in carbs, low in sugar, low in calories. So it's perfect. They come in 16 different flavors, all of them covered in 100% chocolate. Now, eight of the flavors, they have nuts. Uh, and that's my jam. I like the, the the nutty variety. But if you have a nut allergy, and I know people who do, there's good news because Built Bar has half of their flavors, eight of them, that are nut-free and produced in nut-free facilities. Get out there and try a Built Bar today. Go to BuiltBar.com, use promo code LOCKEDON to get $10 off your first order. That's promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off your first order at BuiltBar.com. You are Locked On Kentucky, your daily Kentucky Wildcats podcast. All right, we're back here on Locked On Kentucky, and Kyle, uh, switching from talking about college football in the opening segment and its return, and now to college basketball, and Kentucky uh, is in on Jonathan Kaminga, uh, the number one ranked player in the 2021 class, and he has narrowed his list down to five now. Auburn, Duke, Kentucky, Texas Tech, and the G League. So this this is the first time I've seen (laughs) a list. Welcome back to the G League, yep. That's the first time we've seen a list by a high school prospect where his choices, one of them includes the G League. I can't remember anybody else putting that actually, out there when he's cut his list to five. Actually, I think Jalen Green um, included cut his list. Included, yeah, he included the G League like going into that announcement, and everybody by that point kind of knew he was going to the G League. But that you know that threat continues. Um, yeah, I, I think I think there's still quite a bit of skepticism that Kaminga will ever play college basketball. Um, and, you know, even if he does, I, I don't think Kentucky is really seen as the leader right now. He'd be a huge game changer, especially if he reclassified. The, the, the thing for Kentucky is they don't, they don't really need – I mean, they would need him, but the way their roster is built, there's not a logical spot for him that wouldn't cause some consternation on the rest of the roster. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if he, stayed, if he stayed in his class, they'd love to have him the next year. Uh, I mean, they're very high on him. Everybody's very high on him. He's a, he is a – major difference maker. I think it's, it feels more likely than not that he'll just end up being a pro of some kind. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't right now. I don't think it's Kentucky for him. Um, as it sits today, I don't think there are a lot of people who think that there was for a time. It seemed like they might have a really good shot at him, but, um, anyway, he, that's going to be, um, interesting just in the broader sense, because he's, he is, an even bigger name than Jalen Green. Green was a big, big name and a big get, but Kaminga, you know, has a case. He can make an argument that he's the best player in that 2021 class. Um, and if the G League were able to pull that off, if they were able to throw enough money at him that he doesn't go to college at all and wants to go to the G League or whatever version of the G League is being constructed for those high school kids, um, that would be another kind of major shockwave, I think, that would go through the sport. Well, Evan Daniels of 24-7 Sports, uh, his article on it said the reclassification decision hasn't been made. Uh, Paul Biancardi has a podcast where uh, Kaminga was a guest, and he said it was 50-50 for reclassifying to 2020. But uh, Evan Daniels reports, according to Kaminga's brother, the G League offer could be for this year. So he could be off the table for next season and go to the G League this year, uh, which like you said, would, would not be surprising if he never plays in college. But uh, I don't see 
where Kentucky yeah, has room for him this year. It would be nice to have him, no doubt about it. It's not like they would say no, I don't think. But that would just mean somebody else is going to be unhappy and less playing time and possibly transfer from Kentucky after one season. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, I, they are, I think they already have to worry about that. Like there, there's kind of a log jam on the wings. I mean, Cameron Fletcher is a guy that, you know, you look at and go, you know, it's going to be a little crowded for him. Where is he, where, where is he going to get minutes and is he going to be okay with that? Um, if it's a year of waiting and, and when they were the strange thing, when they were recruiting, uh, um, DeAndre Williams from Evansville was, you know, do you really, we talked about, do you really want to add another um, mouth to feed that, you know, yeah. is, is going to need minutes and shots and, and who's that going to alienate and tick off? Um, so there's always that delicate balance of like, yeah, we want this guy who we know can play and will be an in- impact guy, but we've already made a commitment to these others. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I would not, <laughs> the, the thing I would least, enjoy about being a college coach is recruiting broadly and then I think management of egos during and immediately following recruiting as well I think that would just be I think it's one of the miracles that Calipari pulls off most years (laughs) that he mostly is able to keep most of the guys happy all right well next up we're going to talk we've got a meaty segment on um the athletics top 25 most dominant college basketball teams and Kentucky has four of the top 15. See if you could think of them during the break. Who are the four most dominant Kentucky basketball teams in college basketball history? Uh, Kentucky, as I said, has four of the top 15. And we'll discuss those next on Locked On Kentucky. This is Locked On Kentucky, your team every day. All right, we're back here on Locked On Kentucky. And Kyle, your publication, The Athletic, put out uh, the most dominant college basketball teams, a top 25 list uh, in the history of college basketball. And you would imagine Kentucky would have to be in there. And we asked our listeners to think about it over the break and see if they could come up with uh, the four teams. I know they're thinking 2012, for sure. National championship team with Anthony Davis. They're thinking the 2015 team that went 38 no before losing in the final four to Wisconsin, they have to be in there. I would say anytime to me, the best Kentucky team that I've ever seen would be the 1996 team. They just demolished people. They smoked everybody yes. they ever, they ever faced. Uh, and then the other one, uh, I don't know the other. I mean, you've got the 98 title team, which was not dominant. They were called the comeback cats. You've got the 78 title team. Uh, you go back to the fifties, uh, but this didn't appear to go too far back. Like, like who is going to be a writer for the athletic that would have seen teams play in right. the fifties anyway. Right. Uh, so these seem to be more current, but number 15 is the 1978 team. Uh, and they bring up that, Uh, They kind of say that there was so much expectation for Kentucky to win the title in the first place uh, that they just had no choice but to win it. And they did. Uh, Went 30-2. and Um, And I think one of those games was, uh, yeah, one of the losses was a one-point overtime road loss to LSU. They beat a freshman Magic Johnson in Michigan State on the way to the national championship game, uh, two all Americans, Jack Givens and Rick Roby. 
And then Givens, of course, had 41 points in the championship win over Duke, 18 of 27 from the floor. Yeah, Jack Givens has like one of the great, one of the great tournament games of all time. Um, to do it on that in that moment on that stage against and, and against, I mean, Duke wasn't the hated Duke then, but looking back on it now, to do it against yeah. Duke, um, that's that's an all timer. I feel like that's like kind of an underrated, probably not to people to fans of a certain age, but that's probably an underrated uh, performance in Kentucky history. Uh, Goose Givens, just I mean, maybe it's not underrated, but I just don't, you don't you hear so much modern talk like what's happening now today, and you know in the last in the lifetimes of most current fans um, that that maybe isn't at the forefront. But dropping forty in a national championship game is pretty yeah, amazing. It is, and we haven't seen really hardly anybody do anything like that. We've seen players have big games, but forty is is amazing. So at number twelve. It's the 2012 team, which, of course, was Anthony Davis, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Marcus Teague, Terrence um, Jones, Deron Lamb. Um, and uh, the art, the little write-up, the summary of the 2012 team includes uh, a couple of John Calipari's favorite lines, which are that Anthony Davis was the fifth-leading scorer and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist was the fourth-leading scorer on the team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had Which, never yeah. heard that. Never heard that before. Uh, but they they went thirty eight and two, of course, and then one of them was a buzzer beating loss at Indiana was one of the losses, and the other one was in the uh, title game against Vanderbilt. That was that two thousand twelve SEC tournament was phenomenal because the semifinals. You remember that Florida game? I mean yes. that that Kentucky Florida game was as high level as you'll see. I mean those two just went at it, and fl- I remember Billy Donovan saying afterward, uh, basically. That's the best we can play. Uh, I don't. I don't know that we've played a better game all season than the one you just saw, and it still was not good enough to beat them. Uh, but Vanderbilt had an awfully good team as well, and Kentucky was just ripe for the picking right there. Uh, but it also, I think, helped you know refocus Kentucky a little bit and get them ready for the the run that they made to beat Kansas in the national championship game. I make that argument every year, and it gets people mad because I I've gone back and done the research that like I think the longest winning streak by a team going into the NCAA tournament that ended up winning the national titles, like 10 or 13 games, something like that. It's not huge. Um, and two of the great arguments for that are Kentucky in 2012 and Kentucky in 1996. And in both cases, you could argue that Rick Pitino and John Calipari didn't really um, want to win that game. Like they, yeah. they knew, they knew that they, you know, when you when you see that they change they made changes from how they their lineup was the entire year was it uh, Antoine Walker that that Patino benched for a mm-hmm. big chunk of the the '96 game and then the switch of Kid Gilchrist uh, Darius Miller going in the starting lineup for Kid Gilchrist in the Vanderbilt game I yeah. mean you could make you could make a really strong argument um, that that was not necessarily on purpose but they weren't going to be too upset if they lost um, because they knew it would piss off an elite team. I mean, you know, you have, you're, you're not going to do that with anybody, but if you have an elite team and you know, you have some, some dogs on your team and you've won, like, I think the 96 team had won 26 in a row and the 2012 team had won like 25 in a row or 23 in a row, whatever it was after Indiana. Um, then, then you, I think you can count on, like, if you know, you have the, the killers on your team, that if something happens to tick them off, you know that it's going to have a positive effect moving forward. Like 
when they lost that Indiana game in 2012, um, one of the stories I ended up writing and a couple other people did as well at the end of the year, it was the same time that the watch ESPN app and all that stuff was coming out. And they used ESPN used the Christian Watford shot oh, to, yeah. to advertise the app on your phone, your iPad, your TV, right. every single commercial for watch ESPN was Christian Watford and the court storming. And it, yeah. in, and it infuriated the Kentucky players. Terrence Jones later said that he thought about throwing away all his Apple devices uh, because of <laughs> those commercials. Uh, and, you know, so they lose that game in heartbreaking fashion. And then they just kind of steamroll everybody. And then they get to the SEC tournament and they lose that game. And Michael Kidd Gilchrist looked like he could actually murder somebody in the locker room. He was so pissed off. And you knew. Like, I, I felt like – a. a a high degree of certainty they were going to win the national title just looking at them in the locker room after the SEC championship game. So anyway. Well, in the athletic in that summary of the 2012 team, they make the point that it felt like this was the way college basketball would be from now on that, you know, one and done players and winning a national championship. Well, it's changed. This is how it's going to, this is how it's going to be. This is the new normal. Uh, but as we see, winning with all freshmen is extremely difficult to do and doesn't happen every year. So right after, okay, so that was number 12. Number 15 in the top 25 most dominant college basketball teams by The Athletic was the 1978 National Championship team. The 12, number 12, was the 2012 National Championship team. Number 11 is the 2015 Final Four team that went 38-0, of course, before losing to Wisconsin. But you think about that front court, Willie Cauley-Stein, who wound up being a consensus first-team All-American and National Defensive Player of the Year. Okay, if that's not enough, you have Carl Anthony Towns next to him, the number one pick in the, in the NBA draft. And then, you know the rest. I mean, Trey Lyles and Devin Booker wound up being lottery pick, picks, but you had, you know, the Harrison Twins, you had Tyler Uless. Uh, I mean, you just had... A the platoon. That's where the platoon came from. He had so much talent. He had to send five in and five out. Uh, but you remember the UCLA game, uh, the Kansas game. I mean, this team was just as ferocious defensively as I think I've ever seen. That to me was interesting, uh, too, that they that they made the list. I mean, a team that didn't win the title. I didn't go back through and look. Uh, did you did you notice how if there were others? teams that were not national champions. Um, Actually, no, I didn't. I didn't look to see if I would. I mean, I don't want to do that like while we record here, but I assume uh, there aren't, there aren't many or any, um, but that speaks to that team. And it also speaks to the regret, (laughs) you know, the, just the, the epic regret that Cal Perry and those guys have and the misery that the fans have. Um, But um, yeah. And uh, Houston was number the 1983 Houston team that lost to NC state and Jim Valvano. They're number, they're number 13 on the list. So there's one right there. I could tell you. Okay. Well, that, that, you know, there have been, and, and, and I would also say I good on our guys who put together that list, because I would also say uh, it's good to acknowledge that the NCAA tournament does not always decide the best team frequently does right. not, you know, it, it's the best way to determine a uh, champion, I guess uh, the most efficient way. And it's the most fun for sure. But it certainly doesn't, um, you know, there, there have been many great teams who didn't win it. Um, and that Kentucky one, 
you know, had they finished it off, they'd go down as one of the, what, handful of great teams ever. And people would point to oh, that. Yeah. You know, talk about the defensive ferocity. People would point. Uh, if they'd won it all, people would point back and go, can you believe what they did to UCLA? I mean, it doesn't really get talked about anymore because they didn't win anything. But they undressed UCLA in a way that few teams have ever, especially high yeah. major teams, and name a brand name like UCLA, they had fallen off. But still, it's UCLA on a national stage, on national television. And it was, what was it, like 42 to 7 or something at halftime? Um, yeah. And I yeah, mean, I mean, there was just, a point, didn't know if they were even going to get like five points. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was insane. It was just, it was insane to watch. Yes. I mean, they yeah, also and, destroyed and, Kansas. I mean, that well, was 72 40 in that game. That was yes, early on in the season. That Kansas game is hilarious because they, they just pulverized them, I think, one by 32. And Bill Self comes into the post game press conference and picks up a water bottle and says, I was hoping there'd be, vo- be vodka <laughs> <Right>. in here. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, those are, there have been some great Kentucky teams. It's interesting that there's four of the top 25 of the last 50 years are Kentucky teams. And also that two of them are Cal's teams. Um, you know, if you think about it in those terms, has Cal been a success at Kentucky with only one title? The dude's been here 10 years and he's got two of the most dominant teams in, in the last 25 years of college basketball. Right. All right. So now we jump to number six on the list. And this is as high as Kentucky gets. And it's with the 1996 team under Rick Pitino, the untouchables. Uh, But yeah, 27 game win streak, only one loss after Thanksgiving, uh, a roster that had nine players who went on to play in the NBA. Uh, Kentucky took more shots, made more shots, scored more points and had more assists than any team in the country and led the country in steals. I mean, you think about that. They led the country in shots made, points, assists, and steals. (laughs) Yeah, and I I, I said on the – I tweeted out when I I shared the link a couple days ago when it came out. Like, my only real quibble with the list is that that Kentucky team is only sixth. (laughs) I just – I mean, there's some great teams ahead of them, but I've always thought pound for pound, like, that Kentucky team might have been the greatest team ever, ever assembled. Um, I think they had, it was nine or 10 guys who ended up having NBA careers. Um, I mean, just, it was just an unbelievable team. The style they played, the way they just wore people out. Uh, what was the game in the LSU game? What'd they score in a half, like 76 points and a half or 80. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I think it was Um, 80. I think uh, it was 82 points and a half. uh, I have to go back and look. I can't remember that exactly, but. Also, eight of the 10 players, eight of them who appeared in at least 30 games, shot 50% from the floor. Yeah, well, and two, the, the, the other thing you'll notice, and, and it was something I, I really, it really sunk in for me when we did the, um, the all-time draft. We did the, post, the post-rup pre-Cal draft of UK guys a couple or last week, I think it was, and there are obviously a bunch of Patino and 96 guys on there. You'll, you, you realize – how ahead of the game he was, how many of these like big men he had that were shooting threes and making him at a high clip and how, just how many yeah. threes they shot. I mean, they were, they were like miles away from anybody else. And I just looked it up. It's even crazier than like you could imagine. They scored 86 points in the first half of that LSU game in 96. It was 86. 86. It was 86 to 42. It's insane. They, they more than doubled up 
LSU and a half, and LSU scored forty two points. It wasn't like they, they you know, they were completely shut right. out. Um, wow, that's uh, it, again. I I don't think maybe you can make an argument that they're not number one because it was, it was UCLA that's number one with Bill Walton yeah. and, and Lou Alcindor. Um, yes, that's tough to argue, and especially that two man punch. But beyond that team, I don't think you can make a, a especially powerful argument against 1996 Kentucky. Well, they they won their first four games in the NCAA tournament by at least 20 points. Uh, and then only they only had two losses all season. One of them was to UMass, and they avenged that loss in the Final Four. Of course, it was against John Calipari. You think about the other players, like the contemporaries during that time in 96 – the other guys were like Ray Allen, Tim Duncan, Allen Iverson, Marcus Camby, Kerry Kittles. I mean, I mean that's a pretty good year to be the most dominant team in college basketball when those other guys are on on the court for other teams. Yeah, that's. I would say that's like the one of the. I mean, is that the greatest era of college basketball? <laughs> um, you know, it was modern. Um, it was before. Uh, the straight to high school period. What was, did that start in? Well, I guess 95, it started with Kevin Garnett and 96 was Kobe. Right. Um, so, or maybe 97. So you hadn't had the huge talent drain of all the elite players start going to the straight to the NBA yet. One and done was not a thing yet. Like, so really good players stayed two, three, four years. Um, the three-point shot was really becoming popularized and, and never more than by Patino and those guys. And so, yeah, you had this great team in Kentucky, uh, but you also had all these mega stars in the sport. Uh, that that may have been the glory, the glory days, the true glory days of college basketball. Yeah, well, I lived it uh, as a college student at Kentucky, and it was it was pretty special. I can tell you that. Uh, well. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for us. Uh, remember to check us out on Twitter to, to ask any questions you want answered on here or any topics you want us to discuss. Hit us up at um, at D-R-I-E-F-F-E-R and Kyle is at Kyle Tucker underscore A-T-H. Hey, thanks for listening, guys. Have a wonderful and safe Memorial Day weekend, and we'll talk to you again next week. Are Locked On Kentucky, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or tell Alexa or Google to play podcast Locked On. Don't worry, I won't finish. You get the idea. <laughs> <laughs>